You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Welcome back to another episode of Oil & Gas This Week. You're listening to episode 141. What's up, Mark? What's up, Jake, is that we went from super hot weather, super cold weather to warm weather again. It's just freaking Houston weather is crazy. The other thing is crazy is the number of new shows that as a network we're looking at launching this year. I don't want to get too deep into it. Jake and Colin have one that's coming out. Uh, we got a guy named Bart has one coming out. It looks like me and Patrick may have another one coming out. We got a tech one coming out. So stay tuned. We got a bunch of new shows in the work. And if you like this show and if you want to learn about our future shows and support everything, the easiest thing you can do is give us a review. It takes three minutes. We got a great one from iTunes from Russia, actually. I'm going to butcher this name. Constantina Vidima. A great podcast, extremely educating, useful, and very inspiring. Thank you. So yeah, thank you for the review. If you want to be just like Russia, and why would you not want to be like Russia and give us great reviews? <laughs> uh, take a couple <laughs> minutes, give us a review, and this is what keeps the show humming along. And we're into our news stories. What's the first one, Jake? Up first, Contra Resources acquires RSP Premium for $9 billion. This is one of the largest M&A activity that we've seen in a long time. So the combination would create the biggest player uh, in the Permian, the hottest U.S. oil region. Obviously, we've talked about the Permian, it seems like, every single episode. The deal pencils out a whopping $72,000 per acre. That's crazy. That is astonishing. It really is. But you know what's so cool about this is Concho has always been that company that can fund its uh, CapEx programs with its own cash. That's a rare trait. Usually most companies, even large companies, have to borrow that money either externally or internally. Now, you would think that would make Concho a darling to Wall Street, but Wall Street really hasn't been real happy with them for the last couple of weeks, especially since they announced their about this purchase they're making. I think they're doing the right thing. And if, and if they're funding this themselves and they're buying another player with prime assets in the Permian, which is hot right now, I think this is very smart. It's going to be interesting to see what the Chevron mid-continents and the, you know, the other large majors that have acreage out of Permian, see what they're going to do. Is this the beginning of a M&A activity? It could very well be. Yeah, I definitely think so. I think M&A activity is about to pick up, uh, especially over the next two quarters. I'm just so uh, just blown away at the premium that you pay in the premium compared to some of the other plays. Yeah. And the other thing that's cool about this is, is they're, they're buying a private company, right? Or, or non-public company. Well, that's going to add value to their stock. So this is, you know, we're looking at the way business, the way finances have changed in oil and gas. And it's, it's a good thing, right? The evolution we talked about in the last show with the cryptocurrency, you know, one of the things that could change things. Here's another place where maybe the company itself doesn't really care what the analysts or investors say. They're making a smart decision on their own. And I think they're going to end up emerging as a much stronger, much more powerful company in the end. We'll see. Yeah, I definitely agree. Up next, Tudor Pickering Holt CEO sees Energy Tech Arm as a good bet. So they have recently just launched a energy technology advisory arm of Tudor Pickering and Holt. And they're saying that this could already be probably one of the largest pieces of their business. You know, we talk about oil and gas tech, it seems like every single episode, you know, it is what's hot and it is the world that we are moving into, you know, especially with operators finding using tech to leverage new ways to kind of drive efficiencies of their business. I think this is going to be a very, very good move for this company. You know, Jake, you and I, before we turn the microphones, we're talking about which companies would benefit from certain types of tech shows. And look, we have one in here. I think I'm going to actually reach out to, to Pickering myself and see if we can uh, maybe get them on board as a sponsor for one of our new shows, because I, I agree with you 100%. And the thing is, the complexity of technology is growing you know, 
exponentially as technology gets cheaper and faster. And so if you're a oil and gas company and you don't have a piece of your business that's plugged into that world, just so it can keep up, you get left behind. Because a lot of the issues that we have in this industry today and what we'll have in the future, the only solution that makes sense is a tech solution. And that tech may not even exist yet, but it will exist somewhere. And it may be that it exists in a place of the market you would never think of. It may be sitting in big box retail or legal or something like that. So I think this is super smart and it kind of parallels all the stuff, Jake, that you and I have seen where, you know, all the majors and large independents and the knock, they all have internal groups looking at technology, knowing that what they need in the future, they need to find it first for their competitors too. So I think this is an awesome deal. And like I said, I'm going to reach out to them, see if we can maybe get them on board as a partner. Yeah, I 100% agree. While we're on the topic of oil and gas tech, this is kind of random. I don't know the exact date, but the Denver Energy Tech Showcase is, I know it's going to be sometime in early May. I'm not going to be there because my son's going to be born right around that time. But Colin is actually going. And then I know you know a couple of the people that we know are also going to be there in Denver. I don't know the date. Like I said, I'll put the link in the show notes. So anybody who wants to go, they can go and register. Back on topic. Asset sales accelerate in the oil and gas industry. Earlier this month, Devon Energy sold properties in North Texas Barnett Shale for $553 million. Pioneer Natural Resources and Reliance Energy agreed to sell some of their oil and gas properties in the Eagle Ford to Australia's Sundance Energy for $221.5 million. On Tuesday, Intervest said it agreed to sell its Eagle Ford and Austin Chalk properties for $2.66 billion in cash and stock to TPG Pace Energy Holdings which will be renamed Magnolia Oil and Gas and be led by the former Oxy CEO, Steve Chazen. Let's see, is there any other ones in this article? Other companies divesting assets also going to include Chesapeake Energy. Apparently, they're looking to divest $1.5 billion worth of properties, uh, most likely in the Marcellus, Utica, and Haynesville basins. Continental Resources is looking to also divest, I think, probably half a billion uh, as well. And then there's a bunch of other companies. But that, I think, you know, I was just talking about M&A activity picking up. There's obviously a lot of things on the market, you know, a lot of A&D activity picking up. A lot of companies are looking to divest. So if you're in the market for some really, really large deals, I think it's a good time for you. Yeah. And this is also just another proof that the recovery is in full swing. It's not fake. Because so what's happening is these, these companies are, are selling assets to raise capital and they're going to take that capital and they're going to pay off their debt. They're going to buy back stock. They're going to shrink corporate overhead. And that just puts them in a much stronger position moving forward. It will be interesting to see what goes on with XTO. Uh, you know, Exxon bought them a few years ago and they're pretty cash heavy right now as well. So I think it'd be a good time for them to step in and swing that big CapEx stick that belongs halfway to them, halfway to ExxonMobil and see if they can do some acquisition. And let's keep an eye on this. But this is just this is just another sign that the that the pulling out of the downturn is legit. Yep. And I think this is a good time for any company who's looking to acquire assets outside of the Permian. It seems like everybody's divesting and doubling down, you know, in the hottest area. But, you know, I believe if one area is completely hot, I think you should be a contrarian and focus on other areas. You know, so I think you could possibly get some good deals in the Eagleford. No, and, and you saw people do that years ago in the Permian before people realized the value you had out there. You had some very large companies, some very smart people buy a lot of assets out there because they knew it was prime. So yeah, I wouldn't want to get in that world because it, being me, I'd probably pick the wrong piece of property. But <laughs> but yeah, there's a lot of money to be made. And it's 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 just good for everybody. I mean, it's, we're talking about prosperity, we're talking about creating jobs and you know long-term revenue. So all good stuff. All right, next article, the quote-unquote Netflix of oil setting stage for trillion-dollar battle over data. So there's a battle for big data is brewing in the oil patch. Service companies that map underground pockets of oil, drill the wells, lift crude from miles below, are generating vast new amounts of data. 
more than they've ever realized and before they even realized it was actually valuable. You know, you and I talk about tons and tons of stuff that, that pertains to data and technology. But the real question here is, you know, you've got the service companies doing all this work for the operators, but who actually owns the data that is generated during the work? You know, and so a lot of companies are uh, generating new contracts with their vendors stating that the operator themselves actually owns the data. You know, and so the article also dives into that, you know, the amount of information that they're actually to pull from here could be like a Netflix for oil and gas. You know, it's you've got historical information that goes back as far as you can probably remember, and that would be an entirely new revenue stream for them for to sell to the operators, kind of like a subscription service. So it would be like a data library of just information that they want to pull. You know, and I think they really hit the uh, hit it on the head there. You know, I think there's there's tons of value to be unlocked there, but I, I can't really speak to who should actually own the data. I think, honestly, the data should be shared between both. Yeah. You know, Jake, this is, we've never talked about this. I've actually never thought about this before, but this is really like an ethical question here. So if I'm BP and I hire Halliburton to go do some work for me and Halliburton is collecting that data, who does it belong to? Does it belong to Halliburton or BP? Now, I, I guarantee you that probably in the last couple months and in the future, all the major service companies and all the operators are rewriting their contracts to clarify who owns that data one way or the other. I like the idea of sharing it. I happen to know for a fact that the really large operators don't like to share that data, which would benefit them, right? They could do predictive maintenance on things like subsea trees and pipelines. They don't like to share it because they're worried that their secret sauce would get out and their competitors will know what the choke set at or what they're injecting and what pressure. But in today's world, you can you can segment that data and you can take the identifiable tags off of it so that a service company could look at it and help you do predictive maintenance without understanding what operator it came from. So, yeah, this is kind of a quagmire. I tell you what, if I'm an operator, I would I would assume that I own the data, even if you're doing working for me or not. But I can see some of the big service companies going, no, we collected that data. It's ours. So, you know, this kind of fits in the whole Baker Hughes GE Predix platform, which I've been talking about forever, saying that the real value there is not how it helps operators sensorize their field. It's not the digital oil field. It's the fact that they have all this data to mine, you know, like Facebook mines it as well. So this is something we really have to keep an eye on because if it ends up going the wrong way in court, you know, you take somebody that has all this seismic data that's a service company, but the operators paid for you to collect that seismic data. Well, that's kind of not fair either because now you could sell that data to other people or use it to improve your own products, your own software products at the expense of an operator paying you for it. Yeah, let's keep an eye on this one because because this is where we're going and things like this have to be worked out if we're going to work together as an industry and make things more efficient. So yeah, let's keep an eye on this one. There's three stats from this article that I want to read. Estimated spending on digital technology amounts to less than 10% of the $8 million average cost of an onshore well in the U.S., but that's expected to climb. Uh, second one was more than 7 out of 10 industry executives surveyed by Accenture and Microsoft said they plan to spend more or significantly more on digital over the next three to five years. Uh, and lastly, nearly 40% said they're worried about falling behind peers if they don't continue to invest into digital. So you see how important this is and how at the forefront of you know executives' minds are in the industry. So definitely a good thing to watch out for. Yeah, it's a good, that's a good number. 40% said they're worried about falling behind peers. 
that is a bigger number than MotorPoint's own internal survey that we've been doing a few years about what's the number one thing you worry about. And so this is interesting. That's, that's a huge percentage, 40%. And the fact that they're worried about falling behind their peers, all that does is drive innovation. When you're worried about your competitors, you whether it's real or not, whether you're even with them or ahead of them or behind them, it doesn't matter. You always feel like you're behind. And that, that drives tends to drive research and development dollars. So, so good stuff, but it is something as an industry we have to figure out. You know, Jake, I'm curious, not, I wonder if anybody in our audience knows the answer to this. How do other industries outside of oil and gas handle that? So you look at like aerospace or Department of Defense. You got the Lockheed Martins and Rayathons that are doing work for the government and they gather a bunch of data. Who does that data belong to? Does it I'll tell you the answer to that right now. They, the government owns that. <laughs> yeah. They're going to they're gonna have the trump card no matter what. <laughs> Literally the trump card. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, maybe there's a precedent right there. Anyway, let's keep moving. All right. Uh, we've talked about Saudi Ramco doing the probably the largest IPO in history. Could be a $1 trillion or $2 trillion IPO. The Saudi minister, uh, I'm not even going to try to say his name, they said that the offering is ready from a regulatory standpoint. They are actually launching it uh, on the primary market there. They're in Saudi Arabia. But for the secondary market, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, are they launching it in New York? Are they launching it in London or Hong Kong? And no one's really still sure. So, but the, 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 point of this article was saying that, you know, while we are ready, is it actually the most optimal time to actually go public? Yeah, boy, that's a damn good question. Cause I, I couldn't even guess at that answer. I do want to try to guess at this guy's name. If somebody on, in the audience can correct me if I get it wrong. So it's Khalid Al-Falah is the, the minister that, that we're talking about here. But you're right. If you're going to launch the largest IPO in the history of mankind, you'd want to have it timed perfectly. And man, there's so many variables in that. And the other thing is there's so many variables in launching it on the New York Stock Exchange. And those variables will be similar, but not the same. If you launch it in Asia Pacific in the same way in the UK and the same way in Russia. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure they have some really smart people helping with this. I, I couldn't even take a guess. Now, I will say this, as we're climbing out of this downturn, and as this continued petty media-driven whatever is going on between Russia and the U.S., you know, this this might be a great time to, to, to go ahead and launch this as far as the ability to raise capital and be valued at its highest. Because we're not at the point yet where the rest of the world understands that hydrocarbons are everywhere. There's And, and you know, the big conventional reserves that the Middle East has, especially Saudi Aramco, are worth a lot right now. So yeah, I, I couldn't time it. I, I couldn't tell you when it was, but I can see these make total sense. And it, you know, it is going to be interesting to see if they actually go public. So I was very firmly convinced they were going public. You know, I've talked about this in the show a whole bunch of times. And now I'm starting to see some stuff, some little things it's almost making me wonder if it's a bit of a farce. So I don't know. It's not like the, the royal family in Saudi Aramco calls me and picks my brain about stuff. Although if they want to, if you're listening, <laughs> feel free. I'd be happy to get on the phone with you and talk through this. But yeah, it's I, I think Russia's going to play a part in this. How? I don't know yet, but let's just keep an eye on this. All right, up next, Houston Entrepreneur to Women, question everything in oil and gas tech. So Allison, I think it's Lammy, she's the co-founder and CEO of Houston-based Rebellion Photonics, uh, was speaking to a group of women at Pink Petro's Her World Global Energy Forum, it's kind of a long name, at City Center. And she was quoted saying, we need to find some energy tech champions, especially women. If you've made it this far in oil and gas, you're used to being the odd one out in the room, use that and you already have the tools needed to champion new technology within your workplace. So question everything. I would even go further to say, and I think the, the message here to women is, is absolutely fantastic, but I think that applies to everybody, men and women. You know, I think you should definitely question everything that is that is being done. Why have we always done things the way that 
that it is done. You know, especially whenever I first came into this industry, we were trying to, you know, bring, you know, various software solutions to market. Everyone's like, well, you know, we've always done it this way. So why should we change? And I just absolutely love to challenge conventional logic when it comes to that. Yeah. Big shout to Katie Minhart, who heads up Pink Petra. I don't know if you know this, Jake. She's a big fan of our show. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And we see her in all the social circles and oil and gas. I will tell you this much. Is it Allison that wrote this? Allison, you need to reach out to a woman named Melanie Myers. Uh, she worked her way up through Chevron. I had, was lucky enough to work with her years ago when she was in charge of the Chevron Gulf Coast Business Unit. She's now on the executive board. She's an executive at Chevron. That's somebody that if you want to get a woman that's that's come up in this industry, understands how the business is done, that understands about new technology, new process, about questioning everything, Allison, she's the person. And if you reach out to her, tell her I sent you. Yeah, I agree with you, Jake. I don't think this is a gender thing. I think as an industry, as a whole, we need to question everything. I mean, you know, you and I have seen so many advances just where people decide to do something slightly different. And that doesn't necessarily mean huge technology. It literally can mean like, why do we have these extra 47 things in our checklist when we only need one of them? Well, now you've removed 46 things, which slow you down, which makes you more nimble. And then I thought it was really cool. We didn't actually get invited to to her world as press, although I think next year we're on the list, but I would like to go check this out. Something else you don't know, Jake, actually, I don't want to say it yet, but, but one of our future podcasts plays in this. And so we're, we're talking to potential sponsors now, but yeah, I don't think it's a female thing. Although hats off to Katie. I mean, she started the whole pink Petro thing. I think Halliburton shell were two of their first supporters and have they grown this into really something big. And what's cool, Jake, is that you and I, if we wanted to could go join pink Petro. It's not just for women, it's for everybody, which is the, really the way this should be done. Not so sure. Actually, I'd walk around with Pink Petra shirt. I'd be happy to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, hats off to them for pulling this off and good article here, Allison. 2018 oil and gas projects to break even at $44 a barrel. So new oil and gas projects to be sanctioned this year will likely have a 15% lower break-even level than last year's at $44 barrel of oil equivalent, according to Wood Mac. You want me to comment on that? <laughs> yeah, why not? Yeah. So Woodmax absolutely right about this. And actually, I think that number is kind of high. I, I, I think reality, we're flirting with $40 a barrel. And it depends on what type of projects you're talking about. So conventional reservoirs in shallow water, like in the shelf of Gulf of Mexico, they can do better than $40. Prime acreage in the shell plays, they can do better than $44. Deep water, nope. Oil sands, uh, there's some new technology coming out there. So not yet, maybe. Bad acreage in the shell plays, no they can't do this but that's that's you know i think that number is slightly high but that just shows the trend of us driving efficiencies i mean it's a pretty pretty decent percentage drop from last year and next year i expect that same percent should be that percent should be about the same now the one piece that that we talk about in the show that a lot of analysts don't talk about and actually i must know a dozen analysts at wood max so hey guys um, if, if you could use what i'm about to say at least give me or jake credit for it but some of those savings that's taken place in the last couple of years in this downturn aren't real savings it's the it's the service companies sucking it up and taking low or no margin deals just to keep their people working well that's getting ready to go away or it's actually starting to go away so there's always a difference between market driven cost cuts and market-driven efficiencies. And so there's, yep. a, there's a mix here. Now, what's really cool is we're in the very beginning of technology coming in to really drive costs lower. And there's all kinds of stuff going on, things like cognitive, things like standardization offshore. When all that stuff comes together at the right time, you can see, you can see costs drop 25, 30, maybe 40%, which is just good for everybody. But yeah, so $44 a barrel, I think that's slightly high, but it's probably a decent number depending on what type of field they're talking about. So good job, Woodmac. 
Despite political uncertainty, Mexico lures oil and gas firms. So there's an election coming up in Mexico. There is one of the candidates, Lopez Obrador, I think that's how you say it, has pledged to review existing oil and gas contracts and request halting the next two oil auctions scheduled in 2018. But there's also been reports that he has reviewed the contracts himself and views them as valuable for the country and that no more energy assets will be nationalized under his presidency. So it's kind of like we don't really know which direction if this guy is really the front runner and if he is elected in Mexico, which direction he will go. And so why is that? Why is that important to us? Uh, there's been a significant amount of, of new contracts from American companies that have been awarded, uh, especially over the last year. When did they when did they make a when did they open it up to? Foreign cup Shoot, that was companies. like 2015, 2016. The, the president, Pina Nito, I cannot believe he pulled it off because there's a bunch of negative stuff in social media and conventional media about how basically he was handing over the nationalized all assets of Pemex to the gringos, which is us here in the U.S. And so he was able to actually get around that. And the problem in Mexico, it's, it's a weird problem. And the problem is this. They have the hydrocarbons. They have the oil and gas. In fact, they have a lot of it. They don't have the technical knowledge or engineering expertise or project management experience to get it out the ground. So one of the unexpected benefits is that we're building pipelines like crazy here in Texas to, to ship gas to Mexico, which just benefits Texas and the people here. It also benefits Mexico. Mexico is trying to pull its population out of a rural agrarian society. In order to do that, you need cheap, viable cheap, reliable, abundant energy. So you can generate electricity. So you can have things like schools and, you know, iPads and you can have internet access and, you know, people can keep their houses cool or heated or, you know, all that stuff that takes to run a modern life. And so what's happened is the, the state run nationalized oil company, Pemex, literally just kind of lost its way. And it lost its way for a bunch of reasons, everything from corruption to there's a, a different way that the culture is in Mexico as far as society and layers of society. You know, if you're born at a certain level, realistically, it's really hard for you to move up, even though you may have the, the brains for it. Whereas if you're born at a high level, you maybe you don't have the best leadership skills, but you're given a leadership position anyway. And you combine it all together and they're really in bad shape. And the president was, and I still can't believe you pulled this off. I, I would have lost money on this, but the President Pina Nito was able to pull this off, which then allows American service companies to come in and own some of those hydrocarbons. And that sounds like a minor part, but it's major. This means that somebody like Slumberjay or Halliburton can go help Pemex knowing that they'll make money because Slumberjay and Halliburton aren't in the business for charity work, right? They, they have shareholders. They have to make a profit. And so they, they pulled all this off and you saw it start to change the oil and gas industry in Mexico. They had their first auctions and nobody paid any attention to it. Then their second round of auctions, people started start paying attention and buying it. And then this latest round, you had some major players pick up a lot of properties out there, which only benefits the operator and the country the operator's from and the people in Mexico and the Mexican government. And so this new race that's going on with this Lopez Obrando, you know, if he comes in and changes some of that, he could kill this, this forward momentum. And if he does kill this forward momentum, I don't know what's going to happen to Mexico. So, you know, it's hard enough, Jake, for you and I to stay on top of our politics here in the U.S. It's even more uh, difficult to stay on top of uh, places where it's politically unsettling, like Mexico. But let's hope that the Mexican people and the Mexican government do the right thing. You know, this last round that they had in, in shallow water, they had 18 firms picked up 16 contracts. Um, that's, you know, close to $9 billion worth of investment in Mexico. That's what we want to keep doing. We want to keep other companies that can help the Mexican people get those hydrocarbons out the ground in Mexico working so they create jobs and they pump money back in the Mexican economy. Yep. 
All right, up next, Enbridge to sell more than $7 billion in non-core assets. So they are looking to cut their 50% stake in a German offshore wind project. And sources familiar with the plan uh, are also stating that the Canadian energy infrastructure company is targeting to sell $7.8 billion worth of their non-core assets. So this is part of a, a larger initiative that Enbridge has been looking to achieve, uh, looking to cut debt and streamline businesses after it acquired Spectra Energy last year, creating the largest energy infrastructure company in North America. Yeah, so let me tell you what this really is. This is Enbridge going, we have this wind farm business, we're losing money at it. We have this pipeline business, we're making money hand over fist. Kill the wind project. And I'm, I'm not dogging wind energy. I'm just saying this is a business decision made by Enbridge to get away from something where they weren't making any money and taking that same amount of effort and capital and putting it back into something they're really good at. And that's running pipelines. So, I mean, this is to be expected. I think we've talked about it probably this whole year, <laughs> how 2018 is going to be a year of people of companies getting away from their non-core business. That's all that's going on here. So, so good for them. And the German company, um, I'm sure somebody will jump in there because Germany's had such success in their alternative energy programs, tongue in cheek. <laughs> All right, up next, I think this is our last, yeah, this is our last article. Going back to the Permian, can't, we can't avoid talking about it. Permian oil boom threatens to overtax electrical grid. Uh, the shell boom in the Permian, where companies are intensively drilling while keeping costs low, has led to an unprecedented electricity demand in West Texas, straining the grid as local utilities try to keep up with the demand. That's absolutely insane. They're saying that the, yeah, so the Permian is expected to rise to 1,000 megawatts by 2022 up from just 22 megawatts in 2010. That's crazy. And I can tell you why it's going on. There's this thing, and maybe somebody that has electrical background can help correct me on this. There has this thing to do with phased electrical power. So when you run a, a drilling rig on gensets, it actually costs you a lot more than if you can run it on factory power. And so it just makes fiscal sense for the operators to actually help build the infrastructure to get that factory power or the utility power to their rigs instead of running on gensets. Even the gensets that can run on well gas still is not as economical as running on utility power. So there's been this huge growth. This is actually one of those things that I kind of wish I would have saw coming because if you thought if you would have thought about this three years ago, you could have logically come to the same conclusion and then go figure out where those power line right of need to go and go buy that land and then turn around and sell it at 100% markup to the right of I mean, you could have made some money here. But still, I mean, this is this is just another sign pointing at this downturn is over with and we're picking things back up because companies don't spend money to build infrastructure like power lines unless they think it's going to be there for a while and they'll be able to make their money back. And it's not just power lines. You know, I can't remember what it is, but every so often you have to have substations, you have to have, you know, additional electrical generating capacity. Texas isn't on the national grid, so we have to generate this electricity ourselves. But this is this is kind of cool. Totally unexpected. But, you know, going up to a thousand megawatts, that is a lot. And a thousand megawatts from 22 megawatts, you know, in, in 10 years, that's that's nuts. But once again, here's jobs being created. Here's, you know, the ability to provide cheap, abundant, reliable energy to get even more cheap, reliable, abundant energy out of the ground. So good stuff. Forgot there is one last story, and that is the wildly successful happy hour event that we had. Uh, I think it was like last week or two weeks ago, week and a half, something like that. I don't know what today is actually, but we had over 200 RCPs, and I think we had about 150 people show up. And everybody that I talked to absolutely loved it. So we've decided to do this monthly. And so the next happy hour that we are hosting is going to be the same location. So we work in the Galleria, 2700 Post Oak Boulevard. It's going to be from, we're extending the hours. We did it from six to eight, but nobody really left until like literally like 930. So we're going to do from six to nine. And yeah, so if you came last time, we'll send you an invite. 
I'll put a link in the show notes for the Eventbrite RSVP, and we'd love to see you at the next one. And if you would like to be a drink or food sponsor, which is not much money, it's, it's really cheap, for these happy hours and get your people and your name in front of all these young people that work in the oil and gas industry, because our sponsors loved what, what, what you pull off. It's really easy. Jake, put a link to Julie's email, and they can just email Julie direct and say, hey, we want to be a drink sponsor. I think it's like, what, 450 450 bucks, I think, or less for the drink yep. sponsor. And you get your logo everywhere. People know who you are. So reach out to Julie. We'd love to have you come on board and, uh, and buy us all a drink or two. <laughs> All right, so Red Wing Spot, uh, we're not announcing the winners anymore, although, Jake, I think we're going to have to start putting the winners' names in the actual show notes. I'll let you know about that, but it's really simple. Given with these awesome Red Wing offshore bags, go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. See official site for rules and details. Go enter because these bags are cool. Rig count, Jake, what are we up to or down to or over to? 1,088. That's the highest it's been in a while. That's a good number. I like that number. Events on deck. We speaking of the Permian. Guess what, Jake? Me and Patrick are actually being the Permian on April nineteenth. We're doing nice. a LinkedIn LinkedIn local event on sales and marketing in oil and gas. Um, we'll put a link in the show notes so you can go check us out. I think it's already full, so I think it's too late for you to try to sign up. Um, then we got OTC coming out April third to May third. The entire oil and gas global network gang, everybody that you know, and all our new people come on. We'll be there as press. We're having a great time. And then Jake talked about the the uh, WeWorks Happy Hour. We're going to try to do it on a monthly basis. So just check back in the show notes. And then if you want to know about these events and more, uh, sign up for my newsletter, which Jake, I gave away free OTC passes. So people that signed up for it before get to go to OTC for free. If you sign up for it now, you'll get it too late. You have to wait till next year. But it's really simple. We don't charge for it. We put all the oil and gas events plus cool stuff in your box once a month. And we have some events coming up, Jake, and things like OTC. And if you'd like to get your company in front of other vendors at OTC, other buyers, let us know. You can come be our event sponsor. You get to hang out with us. We shoot some video of you and what your company's doing. We have you on the podcast. It's a great way, great use of your marketing dollars, much better than spending money on anything else. Come spend it with us and we'll give you a great bang for your buck. Then uh, first Friday Q&A, uh, we're getting ready to do that pretty soon. If you want to ask your question, it's pretty simple. Go to oilandgasthisweek.com, ask a question. If we use your question on the air, we'll give you a big shout out. While you're there, give us your email address. Now, we were we were negligent at this. I told everybody that we would let them know first about in live events, and we didn't actually send the email out. We have to get Julie up to speed to do that. But if you go to the website, if you go to oilandgasthisweek.com, give us your email address. We don't spam you. In fact, we've never sent an email out yet, but we're working on that. And we'll let you know what we're up to first. If you want to learn what we're up to second, go to the Oil and Gas Global Network LinkedIn group. Sign up there, and that's where we'll let everybody know second. Oh, that was a lot. Uh, anything else we need to talk about? I think that like covers it, man. All right, so let's get out of here. Remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.